Well, I am the founding pastor of the Village Church, which is right outside of Atlanta in a little town called Hapeville. Um, the claim to fame in Hapeville is the Chick-fil-A originated there, if you guys have Chick-fil-A. And I started the Village Church 25 years ago. We are a progressive, affirming, and inclusive church. We started out as an evangelical church, um, very much. We were in, the, in fact, we weren't in Hapeville at the time. We were in the suburbs. And uh, we kind of saw a Willow Creek model, and we saw, for some of you, you know what I'm talking about, a Saddleback model, and we thought this is, this is different, that nobody was doing it quite like that, and we began to do it that way. But over time, things didn't resonate like they once had. I know you guys talk about uh, constructed faith and a deconstructed faith, and I went into that deconstruction uh, it led us 10 years ago to becoming fully inclusive, and uh, that has been the great, I'm, I'm more proud of that than anything that I've ever been a part of. And, uh, but when this happened, many people decided to leave our church. You guys wouldn't know anything about that, I know, but um, we had a great falling away. That has led us into one of the most exciting and most frightening times of my life. I have been sustained by the writings of people like Tony and Peggy Campolo, by Brian McLaren, by Rob Bell and Phyllis Tickle and Marcus Borg and Richard Rohr and John Pavlovitz. And over the last several years, the teachings of one Stan Mitchell at Grace Point. His ability to communicate deep theological truths in a language that rings with the sound of spiritual truth is intellectually on point. And it also is filled with emotion and has been like water to me in a dry desert land. And like Steve said, not only to me, but to my sons and their wives who are with us tonight. Uh, my oldest son, who lives in Southern California, and his wife, Jen, a couple of years ago, said, we're coming into Atlanta. Do you want to keep the kids this weekend? And we said, oh, my gosh, they got four kids. Yes, we want to keep the kids. And we thought we'd see them Sunday at church. And they said, no, we're not coming to your church. We're driving to Nashville to go to Grace Point. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're going to skip our church to go to that church? But they did, and they had a wonderful time with you guys. Um, Ethan and Rachel, the very same thing. They uh, love your church, and we really do. We talk about your message, and it has been, uh, when I saw Steve at that, con at that conference, I said, truthfully, churches around the world are being sustained by your message. And you may feel beaten up and beaten down and barely hanging on. But I'm telling you, there are pastors that don't have anybody to talk to that are just looking for that. You guys, what you guys are doing back in the booth, what you're doing is making a difference around the world. And when the history is written, a church called Grace Point is going to be uh, applauded for leading the way with, I think, the absolute best preacher that's preaching anywhere in the world. I think he is that good. So I feel very, very honored to be here. Very, very honored to be here. Um, Thanks, Steve, for your hospitality. That has been really, really wonderful. Uh, Stan uh, called not long ago and said, we do a trade out. He's gonna come to Atlanta and he's going to preach for me. And uh, I'm very excited about that, but then it hit me, I use a lot of his stuff. <laughs> and if he doesn't write something brand new for us, my church is gonna think that he's copying me. And I think that's hilarious. I think that's very hilarious. Uh, one of my sons said to me, um, when I told him, I called him and said, oh my gosh, I'm going to Grace Point. And they said, oh my goodness, that's good and bad. And I said, 
wait, why is that bad? And they said, your best stuff is stand stuff. What are you going to say? And uh, I called him a nasty word and I got off the phone. Anyway, I couldn't believe that he did that. But anyway, I'm glad to be here. Everybody's been so nice. The men this morning were so kind. Your worship team uh, was stunning. Uh, that really moved me. And the last song is one of my favorites that Nicole Nordeman's just uh, put out. And it was just beautiful the way you guys did it. So thank you very, very much. Uh, from time to time, people ask me when they attend our church, why do you guys talk about love the way you do? We don't hear that in other churches that we attend. I bet you hear the same thing. Why is your message so different, uh, different from anywhere else we've ever been? And it's a great question. Why does it seem churches are lacking in genuine love for all people? We see it everywhere. We look in the scriptures and we just see it. We didn't always see it. Well, we were a part of the whole religious circle for a long time, but now it's like, it's so clear. Why can't people see it? And then why are Christians being ugly about people? Why do they say things so hurtful? John Pavlovitz, who spoke for us uh, several months ago, he said, sometimes the best evangelism is simply telling people you're a Christian and then don't be a complete jerk. And it's like, those are good words. That's good. Why can we sometimes struggle there? The bar doesn't seem very high for churches that are really being loving and inviting and embracing to all people. One of the saddest deficits in the 21st century church is the simple act of empathy, of really caring for people, of thinking about what they really need. Jesus tells us in Luke 6, 31, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The golden rule, I learned it as a boy. You maybe learned it as a child. And yet I didn't even attempt to live it for most of my Christian life, that was not even anything on the radar. I had other things I needed to do. I needed to teach about the second coming. I needed to teach about uh, different systems that we were working on that were making sense. I needed to talk about why certain groups were excluded and why other groups were in. That's the way it was for most of my life. Nursing scholar Teresa Wiseman wrote about the attributes of empathy. It has convicted me when I've thought about empathy and how most of my adult life I didn't possess these things. She said, seeing the world through another's eyes is one of the keys to being an empathetic person. This story goes back 30 years ago, but I think about it often. I have a friend named Brandy. He is a musician and he's a thought leader and he's a counselor. 30 years ago, we were having lunch and he began opening up to me about some of the pain he had felt as an African-American man. I remember that day so well because in retrospect, I was so out of it. Everything Brandy said, I told him what was wrong about what he was saying, and I told him what the truth was. My memory of that day is that the more I talked, the more discouraged Brandy came and uh, became until he just decided, let's dismiss this conversation and end our lunch. I left that lunch knowing I had done something very wrong, but I didn't know how to name it. I was telling him how he should feel as an African-American man, because I obviously am not an African-American man, and he is. I see the same thing happening all the time. We talk about poverty, and we act like we know so much about poverty, but we never actually sit down and listen to someone who is genuinely poor. We all see through the, a lens. We look through the lens of age or ethnicity, ethnicity or race or abilities or personal history. We all are looking through that lens, and we think we understand everything clearly, and we never stop just to ask somebody else their story. 
Brandy and I have long moved past that day, but it's never left me because I knew in that day I was not being a very empathetic person. I was not treating Brandy the way I would be wanting him to treat me. I was not following the golden rule. Weissman says something else. She says, learning to be non-judgmental is a key to being an empathetic person. I look back and I'm embarrassed about how judgmental I've been in my life. I was super judgmental about the poor. Why don't you just get a job? Why don't you just go and get a job? Go and apply and get a job. And then I moved into Atlanta where I'm surrounded by people who don't have a place to live. They don't have a transportation money. They don't have anything and they have no fallback, no support system. And suddenly I'm realizing this is tough. This is tough. I read the book Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. I don't know if y'all ever read that book. It's one of the great books by Linda Torado. And it changed for me. Why was I so judgmental? Suddenly I said, I've got to stop listening with so much judgment in my mind. Teresa Weissman also said to understand another person's feelings, to really try to understand their feelings. A week after the Charlottesville marches had happened, where members of the neo-Nazis and the KKK marched at Charlottesville to protest the taking down of a Confederate statue. I sat at a lunch with three of the smartest people I know, two are PhDs and the third is a highly educated entrepreneur. And one of the men asked us our take on the Confederate statue issue. Again, I'm in Atlanta, I was Atlanta born, lived there my whole life. I had thought this answer through many years ago when the issue was flying the Confederate flag, when that was the big issue in South Carolina. And so this is what I said, all the guys were listening and I said, my love for my black brothers and sisters far exceeds any love I might have for a statue dedicated to men who fought against the United States to keep my black brothers and sisters enslaved. And I think it's true. That was a moment of trying to be empathetic. But sadly, I was a pastor for 20 years and never tried to have that empathy. The church should be a place where we are genuinely empathetic for people's situations, but we're not. I want us to look at a scripture in John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who were the fundamentalists of the day. And Jesus in John chapter 5 verse 39 says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is saying, you study the Bible, but you don't really believe the Bible because you don't know me and I'm all through the Bible. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? They had all the pieces of the puzzle there but they couldn't put it together. They had the letter of the law, just not the spirit of the law. They missed the forest for all the trees. And the reason they couldn't put it together, Jesus said, is they didn't have the love of God in their heart. Let me give you a profound statement. And this didn't come from Stan. What we focus on in the Bible says as much about us as it says about what's actually in the Bible. Do we have the Rorschach slide? The Rorschach slide? Were you able to put that up there? There it is. What you're looking at is one of the 10 pictures that make up the Rorschach inkblot test. The test is named after its creator, Swiss psychologist Herman Rorschach. Think real quickly what you see when you look at the slide. Just real quickly, you don't have to write it down, but just think real fast. 
The Rorschach inkblot test has a way of testing out or teasing out what's going on in your subconscious. It's a psychological test in which subjects' perceptions of 10 inkblot slides are recorded and then analyzed. If you're with a psychologist and you describe seeing a monster or a man in a mask seeking to hurt you, a psychologist might postulate that you have a fearful heart because what is in you is what you are reflecting on the slide. If you said what I see and then you describe something erotic, the psychologist might say what you are seeing is revealing inside of you some sexual issues that need to be addressed. If you said I see someone torturing another person, the psychologist might think there's some sadistic things going on and might need to address that. We project onto an ambiguous picture a clarity that is not there. And the clarity we impose on the picture says a lot about what's going on in our subconscious mind about us more than what necessarily is in the picture. This is true about the way we interpret the Bible. It's the way, it's true about how we interpret life. It's true about the way we interpret God. It's true about the way we interpret experiences. It says a whole lot about what is in us. I've discovered how centered we are on love determines to a large degree what we find in the Bible. Let me say that again. I have discovered how centered we are on love determines to a large degree what we find in the Bible. Remember Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do not have the love of God in your heart and you've missed me and I'm clearly spoken of in the scriptures. It will determine a lot about how we see life. At the village, as I believe at Grace Point, we see the love of God in every lesson. It is the number one thing that jumps out at us. Stan talks regularly about the fact that Jesus is our hermeneutic. And so I introduced our church to that thought. Jesus is our hermeneutic. We interpret the scripture through his lens. And when we look at the scripture through his lens, we don't see genocide as something God does. We don't see banishing people from the community because of a verse in Leviticus. We don't see that. We see someone who didn't care that the Old Testament said, don't touch someone with leprosy. He touched them anyway because his love transcended everything. It's crazy, but if you look at church history, you don't find a lot of people advocating for the love of God. All the way through church history, oh, you'll see theological debates, you'll see political posturing, you'll see speculation about the second coming of Christ, but you don't see very much about the love of God through church history. And we know it's there. How is it that when it's so central to the Christian faith that the love of God doesn't even creep into any of the church creeds? Think about that. The love of God is not in the church creeds. Let me take a little pause, just a little sidestep. The brain is the most complex organ in the Bible. We're impacted by about 100 million bits of information per second. The brain instantly deletes 98% of this as irrelevant, just throws it aside. And then the brain filters the remaining 2 million bits of information and brings to our conscious awareness seven pieces of information per second, give or take two, that it deems most important. So it's filtering all the time. You are hopefully conscious of my voice right now. And if you weren't, you at least now think, yes, I'm conscious of his voice. You maybe haven't been conscious about the seat you're sitting on, but now you are. But we don't think about it. It's not a part of our filtering process. The brain is a magnificent filtering device. Have you ever known people with heads in the clouds that you think they must be an idiot because you don't understand? Well, they're thinking about other ideas and they're oblivious to what is happening all around them. 
What we notice reflects our values and it says more about us than we could ever possibly know. The mind is a filtering machine. What we see is what we want to see, what we're conditioned to see, what we expect to see. And what we see says a whole lot more about us than it says about what there is to be seen. That helps us understand why we can see people who say they are followers of Jesus and yet they when we watch them, we think, how are we missing this? We're on a different page. How is this happening? We see what we want to see. My country church outside of Atlanta, where I grew up as a boy, we went there when I was 12 years old. My mom and dad were about to get a divorce, and they said, we got to get the kids and get into church. So we got into a Southern Baptist, country Southern Baptist church, and uh, in that church, I, I fell in love with it. I, I got into the youth choir and became a Sunday morning, Sunday night youth choir, RAs, if y'all remember some of that stuff. I, mean, I was Southern Baptist in all the way. And uh, I didn't know till after I had moved away that when I was a kid, African-American families often would come to our church and deacons would meet them out front and let them know that they weren't welcome at our church. How, how did they, how did you do that? What's in us is what we see and what we project. I want to look at a few examples with you about that. Derek Floyd in his book on disarming scripture points out the shocking reality that about numerous texts in the Old Testament that have been used repeatedly by Christians to justify genocides like the Crusades that's continuing even to the present time. Fighting in the name of Christ with the crosses emblazoned on their chest, crusaders sacked Jerusalem in 1099, slaughtering the Jewish and Muslim inhabitants, cutting down unarmed men, women, and children with the sword. According to their own accounts, the crusaders killed 80,000 people in the sack, sacking of Jerusalem. Following the massacre, the crusaders sang hymns of thanksgiving. One eyewitness writes in praise of this ghastly event, in the temple and porch of Solomon, men rode in blood up to their knees and bridle reins. Indeed, it was just and splendid judgment of God that this place should be filled with the blood of unbelievers since it had suffered so long from their blasphemies. The city was filled with corpses and blood. That's horrible. What's in us is what we reflect on the scriptures. In the Middle Ages, the rack was a torture instrument used to rip people in half to try to get them to profess faith in Jesus. The church did that. And there was a little inscription on the bottom of many of these racks that said, Palma Existo Tandem Ut Deus, or Deus, to God be all the glory. Really? Screams, agony, torture, all for the glory of God. This was used on heretics and witches and political dissidents and Jews and Muslims, anybody who disagreed with the church. This is what happened. How is it possible? How is it possible that people who claim to be following the Lord, who told us to love and bless those who persecute us, have turned into the persecutors? In our early history, Native Americans were frequently cast in the role of the Canaanites and the Amalekites in order to justify their slaughter. Again, this is from Floyd's book, I was shocked. He quotes Sylvester Johnson stating the result of this was through war, starvation, and disease, at least 95% of the 100 million Native Americans were wiped out. As recently as 1994, these same biblical texts were used to spur on the killing of around 800,000 Tutsis in the Rwandan genocide. 
inciting his congregation to participate in the massacre. One pastor preached on 1 Samuel 15 where Saul was rejected by God for failing to wipe out the Amalekites. And he said this, if you don't exterminate the Tutsis, you'll be rejected. If you don't want to be rejected by God, then finish the job of killing the people that God has rejected. No child, wife, old man should be left alive. And all the people said, amen. How is this possible? Here's the principle. You see what you want to see, what you expect to see, what you're conditioned to see, and you filter out everything else. And that blinds us to the glory of God and the beautiful face of Jesus and the love that is supposed to flow from all of us. One of the grossest examples of this occurred in Nazi Germany. The Nazis had on their belt buckles, Gott mit uns, God is with us. For a lot of Jewish children, the last thing they saw before they were sent to the showers and gassed was the belt buckle worn by their murderers. God with us. And the bulk of Nazi Germans were Lutherans and Catholics. Stan points out, and I thought it was brilliant when he said, we need to be a little humble about our judgment of Islam. We're 600 years older. If we go back 600 years, what were we doing? Same thing. Same thing. The Bible is a Rorschach test. Life is a Rorschach test. How you interpret history is a Rorschach test. It's all a Rorschach test. What's in us is what we reflect. And that's why there seems to be so much divergence on what is the path of people who say they follow Christ. Which brings us to another big question. How is the love of God missed throughout all of history? None of our creeds make the love of God a big deal. None. Let me share something with you that I know many of you know, but maybe many of you don't know all the details. This, this would kind of be something just to keep in your mind. How we read the Bible changed dramatically in the fourth century. First three centuries, the church was a beautiful thing. I mean, they thought about the humble Christ. They wanted to love all people. They thought about Jesus dying on the cross. It was a beautiful picture of the humble God, the meek God. They understood Jesus as, as a disciple, and they understood that their number one job was to love people, even their enemies. They were a persecuted minority, but they didn't care. They loved everybody. It was this beautiful picture of what it's supposed to be. And they were killed by the Romans for their faith, but that was okay because this life was just a prelude to the next. It was a beautiful thing, but all of that changed in 312. When the Roman Emperor Constantine allegedly got a vision that told him to put the first two letters of Christ on the shield of his, of his soldiers, and he would march into battle against the other armies, and God would give him the victory. Doesn't sound anything like Jesus, does it? The God who kills the most people is going to be the real God, and Constantine's vision, let's go and do it. God's going to help us. I'll conquer the world in God's name. And Constantine thinks his vision is from God. I don't think so. He goes on the battlefield and he wins. And the next year he legalizes Christianity and he begins throwing money at the church. He throws money and power at Christians. He gives them the pagan temples for their meeting places. That's when we start calling buildings churches. Christianity becomes paganized overnight. Remember the gospels when Jesus tells us, uh, we read the story about him being offered in a temptation, all the power that he wants, all the wealth that he wants. And he says, no. I'm not doing that. But Constantine's vision and action suddenly change our whole story. 
We, we were excited. We're going to be a superpower. This is awesome. No longer is it the humble Christ dying on a cross. Now it's big buildings and now it's power and being able to force people to do what we want. People like St. Augustine and Eusebius see this as a blessing. They're church fathers and they say, this is good news. God is giving us the power. He's letting us run things. And Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire in 382. And in 383, we read about the first Christian mob storming a pagan temple and murdering a pagan priest. And we've been on a bad path since. When you pick up a sword, you put down the cross. The whole picture of Jesus changes in art. By 500 AD, you find Jesus dressed in art in Caesar's costume. He's a Caesar Jesus. All of that stuff about imitating Jesus, all that begins to get filtered out. We're going to do it a different way. Once violence got into our hearts and our lifestyles, we begin to make God into our own image. So here we are in 2017, and so many people see the church one way, and some of us say, it's not, that's not what we see. That's not what we see. How is it possible we're so divided? Well, you see what you want to see, what you expect to see, what you are conditioned to see, and you filter out everything else. And doing that blinds us to the glory of God and the face of Jesus. We are heirs of that Constantinian mindset. But our church is very much like yours. We've gone against the grain. We've said that's not the church. That's not the dream of the church. That's not the dream that was in God's heart. We are going to love all people. And I want you to know something. It was tough. We are a little ahead of y'all as far as going through some. We didn't have as far to fall. I will tell you that. We, didn't, we weren't as lofty in, 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 in such a big setting as you guys were. But we had people that left us. And it was, it was painful. I never will forget one of my best friends that had been with us forever. I wrote him 30 pages, 30 pages of just agony trying to explain to him theology of our inclusion of all people and that this wasn't something that just was done on a whim that this is something that has been moving in our hearts and we've been studying for years and years and years and his response to me was quick and to the point you're a heretic I fear for your soul when you stand before God I know you guys have heard that kind of stuff but you know what we wanted to be a church that was loving and we said you know the church has been wrong a lot so just because they've always thought this one way, they've thought this one way in a lot of wrong, ways and they've been wrong. I went to school when I was in seminary, I went to Southern Baptist University and Southern Baptist Seminary, and we learned that homogeneous churches grow, heterogeneous churches can't grow, so you want to make your church homogeneous, everybody kind of alike, right? Andy Stanley does a great deal at his church. They kind of have the perfect marketing plan. They have the perfect uh, age group. They know the music to do, how many Sunday school classes they need to have for children, how many parking places. They know how to do it. It grows. But you know what? God placed in our heart the idea that why can't poor people come to church with people who have some means? Why shouldn't it be able to work like that? And so we moved to Hapeville and suddenly we had poor people, struggling people, even homeless people and they began to come to our church. I remember one time, one of the most foolish things I did, I was telling some stupid story about a, uh, a real awful hotel I stayed in once in Austria. And as I'm telling the story and thinking it's really funny, I'm looking at people and they had slept under the bridges. 
the night before and it's like this this doesn't work anymore this is this is different this is not my suburban group these are people that have real needs I had a family come to our church and they said at our previous church we heard about the poor and we raised money for the poor but here we do those things but we also sit by them and we get to know their names and they become a part of our family and it's so much more real than anything I knew when I was at the suburban church and I had it kind of going on back in the day the idea of being persecuted I thought persecution as a young preacher I thought persecution would come from like the alcohol industry would be persecuting me or the uh, movie industry would not like me because I'm a Christian pastor. And I have realized our persecution comes from people inside the church, just like it did in the life of Jesus. Our largest donor met me about eight years ago at our house and he talked, I talked to him passionately about what I felt God was doing and his response, you'll never get another dime from me. And he slammed my door and he left, walked out to his car, never saw him since. But that's okay. I wouldn't go back for anything. We had a young guy in our church who got in trouble, ended up going to prison for five years. He was so nervous when he got out about what people at our church would think about him. But when he walked through the doors of our church, people broke out into spontaneous applause. With tears rolling down his face, one by one, people embraced him and told him how much they loved him and how glad they were he was back. He told me not one person asked him how he could have been so stupid. Every person just wanted him to know he mattered to God and he mattered to every person in our church. As he told me that, my mind was flooded with the thoughts of the father of the prodigal son saying, kill the calf. My son, who was dead, is alive. He's been found. A few weeks ago when Irma came through, I knew, just like tonight, I thought, we're not having anybody at church because we, I thought nobody's going to come. We had a good crowd. But I thought our homeless people won't be able to come. But I looked and saw Carl. And I said, Carl, how'd you get here? Because Irma, it had been like this crazy storm we had gone through. And he said, I walked. And I said, where do you live? And he said, Riverdale. I said, how many miles is that? He said, five. It's like you walked to church five miles through a hurricane? And he said, I want to be with my church family every Sunday. We have a couple, Joe and Jim, they've been with us 25 years. They've been together 30 years. They're ushers at our church 25 years. But for 15 years, we never mentioned their relationship. And they stuck with me. They are way better people than I deserve. Way better people. Do you know how wonderful it is to be able to say, with the love of God in my heart, Joe and Jim have been together 20 or 30 years. And they're two of our best friends. They told me recently, you'll never know what it means to us that we have a church that loves and honors us. We never thought that was possible. My wife goes up to the church on Sunday mornings early and she makes coffee. Sometimes she doesn't really like that, her job. She wants to give that job up. But one of our homeless guys said to her a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, this is the only coffee I drink each week. He said, and it sure is good. She came home and said, Ray, I'll do the coffee from now. I don't care. I want to keep doing the coffee. Let me give you two quick thoughts. We need to ask God to open our eyes so we truly see through the lens of love. Everything through the lens of love. Everything through the lens of love. 
And one final thing, we need to commit to making Christ-like love the centerpiece of our lives. The most important fact in our existence is to know the love of God and to share the love of God. And I want you to know, I didn't know that for most of my life as a pastor, I didn't know that simple truth. And I'm so happy I am where I am today. My sons, my wife, my daughters-in-law, they've all been on the same mission growing and it's like this is the most beautiful picture of Christianity I've ever witnessed. I didn't know it was possible. Our lives have changed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if you speak with the tongues of men or of angels but you don't have love, you're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. If I have the gift of prophecy and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The Bible is a Rorschach test. The Bible is a Rorschach test. Can you read it through Christ's lens of love? When I heard my sons were going to be here, I said, would y'all, if they had time, would y'all sing a song? And then Matt was so nice. I asked Matt, I said, would that throw things off? They, he said, absolutely not. We'll make some changes and absolutely not. We just want you to know how much we love you, Grace Point. We love you. You have been what has sustained us at times when nothing else was holding us up. A timely message by your church was what we needed. And uh, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for letting us be here. I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, I'm going to ask the guys to come up. And I want to close with a song, okay? God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this beautiful congregation. Thank you for the love in their hearts that lets them see a message that we understand now so clearly is there. Yet so many miss it. May we be people of love. May it permeate all that we do. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name.
Show.